So for 10 months, I have been walking through the book of Mark. And last week, I said I was finished. Uh, And then Dolores Sontag posted something on Facebook this week about Mark chapter 17. And I thought, well, maybe we should just push a little further in and do some more. Mark has 16 chapters, but I thought maybe this would be the week to go on. Um, We're actually going to take a look at something today, um, which is interesting. If you were reading along with me, uh, and I said we were done with the book of Mark, you notice I finished Mark uh, at Mark 16, verse 8, but your Bible keeps going. Um, there's another 11 verses in your book of Mark. Every single Bible that, 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 that's been printed in English uh, includes verses 9 through 20, and then your esteemed and, and well-loved preacher says, I'm not preaching that part of Mark. And that should, you gospel people out there, lead you to say, Preacher, why? Why won't you preach the end of Mark? What is, what, is, what is your problem? Why don't you give us the big finale at the end of Mark? And today I'm going to talk about why I'm not going to talk about the end of Mark. Um, and we'll use some other scripture so it won't just be a here's why Matt doesn't like the end of Mark. Um, but what we're going to talk about today is, is how we came to get the Bibles that we have in our laps today. And the Bible's in the pew rack in front of you and the Bible that's downloaded onto your phone. How that Bible came to be, how it got put together, and why it is that we can trust it for uh, uh, teaching in our lives uh, and have it to to change us to be more like Jesus Christ. Um, But that starts with recognizing that there are some parts in the Bible that just jump out and lead us to have some questions. And the end of Mark is one of two sections in the entirety of Scripture that lead us to have these questions. The other passage is in the book of John. It's a story about Jesus and a woman who's caught in adultery, and they all want to stone her. You all might remember that story. But the end of Mark and that passage in John are what are known as the disputed passages in Scripture. They're disputed for for a a fairly simple reason. When we go and we look at uh, at the oldest documents and the best documents that we have, they're not there. Um, it's, it's pretty apparent, and in fact, I'll say it is certain that the end of the book of Mark was not written by the guy named Mark who wrote the first 16 chapters and 9 verses or 8 verses that we have. The end of Mark was written by someone else, likely a follower of Jesus Christ, who had read the Gospels of Luke and John and Matthew and was not satisfied that, that the ending of Mark gave the full picture. Because the way Mark ends is unsatisfying in some ways. Right, Jesus is gone from the tomb. The women come to the tomb. They look into the tomb. There's an angel in the tomb who says, he's not here. And then the women leave terrified. Right? I mean, that's literally uh, my, the last word in my Bible in, in Mark is they, they left afraid. And that's not a satisfying thing because we know there's more to the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the empty tomb. Right, We know that Jesus appears to his disciples. We know that Jesus appears to them on the Emmaus Road. We know Jesus teaches some more. He gives the great commission, going to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all to obey all I've commanded you. Right, We know that there's more to the story, but Mark puts a period in a spot that isn't that satisfying. And so the thought is, the, 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 the idea is, likely someone who's familiar with the other stories of Jesus tacked on uh, a couple extra little stories about Jesus, and they're true stories. In fact, every story that's in the end of Mark can be found somewhere else in one of the other gospel accounts. It's not that the end of Mark isn't true, 
it's that it's not Mark. When I was in, um, in college at Houston Baptist University, it was a really um, kind of the tail end of the roughest season in Baptist life. Um, there was a huge split in the Southern Baptist Convention um, between, well, say moderate Baptist and conservative Baptist. You know, a moderate Southern Baptist is a pretty conservative person overall. But there was a split between them. And the issue that was at hand um, that um, some of y'all will remember very, very well was um, the inspiration of the Bible. Was the Bible inspired and an errant word of God? Was it truth without any mixture of error? And that issue was the key issue that separated um, some groups. Some would say, well, it's inspired, but it's not inerrant. Some other people would say, if you say it's inspired, but not inerrant, you're a heretic and we don't want you with us. And that was the battle lines that were drawn back in the mid-90s, early 90s, um, starting probably in the late 80s, honestly, going until about 2000. I was at Houston Baptist University in 2000, uh, and I, I went to a meeting. I was in a scholarship program for people going into the ministry. Money well spent, HBU, I'm here. Um, but um, I was in a scholarship program, and we had a, a representative from one of the state conventions come and talk to us. And there was a time for a question and answer. And one of the students who was uh, obviously much more uh, mindful of the, what was going on in the world at that time asked this uh, denominational representative of one of our state associations, state conventions, said, do you believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God? Inerrant means it's truth without error. There's no errors anywhere contained inside of the Bible. And this man, it, it really brought to light something in me. He could not say that. He could not say that the Bible that we have is inerrant, that it has no errors in it, and that we can trust it fully. Right, He would say it was inspired. He kind of hemmed and hawed and tried to go around a little bit to avoid saying, no, I won't say the Bible is inerrant. Right? But he, he, he really, and I was sitting there as an 18-year-old college freshman, I thought, oh my. There are people who are like Jesus-loving people, which this man clearly is, right? who, who didn't deny that the Bible was true. Like fully, absolutely true. Not mostly true or true enough in places. Right? And it really kind of shook me in a moment. And one of the reasons that some people struggle with that is we end up with passages like this at the end of Mark. These disputed passages that we have in the Bible, right? they're not original. And so what do we do with that? Well, I'm going to tell you what I do with that, and then hopefully that's going to help you some. The first thing is this, guys. Um, when I say that the Bible isn't errant, and I will say that. You ask me, Matt, do you think the Bible is true without any mixture of errant? I'll say, absolutely. I affirm that 100%. I'm about the most conservative Baptist preacher you're going to meet, okay? I'm, I'm down the middle on the Bible being truth without error. But I'll say it's inerrant in its originals. So when Mark sat down the book of Mark uh, and was writing the book of Mark through his personality and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, every word that Mark wrote was the inspired, inerrant word of God. I believe that's true. Whenever Matthew sat down to write Matthew, when John sat down to write John, when Paul sat down to write all of his letters... He was inspired by God uh, to write these things. But that doesn't mean that everything that's happened to the the Bible since it's been written is without error. I remember whenever I was a kid, I'd play a game called Telephone. Maybe y'all played this game. You would sit in a circle, right? And this game is kind of hard anyways, but you'd have a circle of a bunch of children who are bad listeners anyways, 
and then uh, someone would start, and they would whisper into someone's ear, and what they would whisper would be a sentence. And so my sentence would be, you know, I literally love Jose Altuve. Okay, that would be my sentence of choice, right? Jose Altuve, if you don't know who he is, he's a second baseman for the Houston Astros. He's like this tall, and he hits dingers, okay? So he is, he's an amazing guy, and so, so that would be my sentence, and I would whisper it uh, to Miss Dixie, and then Dixie would whisper it on, and it would go all the way through the room, and it would go around back to the circle, and the person sitting beside me on my left would say what they heard whispered. And by the time it had been transmitted, you know, 60, 70 times around the room or 10 or 12 times around the circle, what would come out on the other end would be like, you know, I, I like Taco Bell or something, right? And we'd be like, how, how did we go from Jose Altuve to Taco Bell, right? Just because they sound, you know, Mexican. He's Venezuelan, by the way, but, you know, like, it's just because they sound that way, like, because things get messed up in transmission. And I recognize that that can happen even with a written text. When, when the Bible was given uh, to individuals to write it down, when they wrote down what God inspired them to write, it was copied and copied and copied and copied. You know, we have no original copies of any of the New Testament writings. Right? And that might lead you to be a little bit frightful. right? Like, oh my goodness, we don't have anything written in Paul's handwriting. We don't have anything written by Mark. We don't have any, even a piece of a fragment written by Peter. We have nothing original, but what we do have are really good copies. You know, if I take my Bible and I set it down on our coffee machine, which I think was here when Elaine Simpson's dad was pastor. I mean, it is an old coffee machine that we got in the office, okay? Uh, right? It's, it, I don't know how old it's 15 years or whatever, right? But if I was to set my Bible down on that coffee machine and I made a copy of that and a copy of that and a copy of that and a copy of that, it would get faded as time goes on, but you know what? It would be precise and accurate. Because it takes a picture and it, re- and it reproduces it mechanically. But people make mistakes. And so as you see, as, as copies go forward, you can have some errors in copying. Errors in copying don't mean the Bible has errors in it. And in fact, uh, the, I'll go with the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was written a long, long time ago. I don't know, 700 B.C. maybe? Nah, probably, probably, probably to do with that. 500 B.C. Isaiah was written. And we didn't have a copy of the book of Isaiah until 900 A.D. That's a long time to be making copies to get back to the original. Our oldest copy until the 1970s was was, uh, was a 900 A.D. copy of the book of Isaiah. Then something happened. We had a major archaeological discovery, and it was the Dead Sea Scrolls. Some of you remember that big discovery. Some shepherd was standing in in the middle of nowhere, right? And he was just throwing rocks, because what else are you going to do out in the middle of nowhere when you don't have cell phones? And so he grabs a rock, and he throws the rock into a hole in the side of a mountain, and he hears jars break. And he goes up to where the jars are broken, um, and he discovers a vast library of ancient texts. And inside of those ancient texts were biblical texts. And we have a copy from the book of Isaiah that was from like 200 B.C. And so we pushed the date back of Isaiah a thousand years. Our oldest copy was 900. Now our oldest copy is 200 B.C. It was over a thousand year difference in the age of the copies. And you know, they, they, they analyzed one chapter. There were 17 letters different. 17 letters different over a thousand years. And most of those differences amounted to like conjunctions or spelling errors there was there was three letters of the 17 that were different it was one word that was added in it was the word light and it didn't change the meaning of the sentence at all guys the copies of the bible were meticulously done 
And they were meticulously made. And so when we run into stuff that leads us to think, well, maybe the Bible isn't reliable because we don't have the autographs, we don't have the original copies. I want you to know the Bible is trustworthy because God preserved it to be that way. I do want to read some Bible today because this is where we're at, right? Turn, flip your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. This gets you to the point of what I understand about Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's inspired by God to write these words about the Word of God, uh, starting in verse 16, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And this is what Paul tells Timothy. He says, um, all Scripture, every bit of Scripture, is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. What Paul is saying is, is informs us of how the Bible came to exist. It is literally breathed out by God. Now, God uses human authors. He uses the personality of Luke. As Luke writes Luke and Acts, he uses the personality of Isaiah when Isaiah is prophesying and writing down his prophecies in the book of Isaiah. But God is the one impressing and speaking through these personalities to us today. Guys, the Bible is important to us because it is literally breathed out by God. You know, I've been to countless youth conferences and youth camps and even things with adults, and I have seen people literally crying, crying and saying, I just wish God would speak to me. Right? They read the Old Testament and God appears to, uh, to people in various visions and to Moses in the burning bush and uh, you know, to Abraham and visions, and we have all these appearances of God. He speaks intimately to people. We have Jesus showing up, being God in the flesh, speaking to the disciples and to the, that, that part of the world while he was here. And they say, I wish God would speak to me. And literally what God has, has done for us when he gave us scripture is he spoke to us. So the question is, are you listening to what God has to say. Do you have a discipline of sitting down and submitting yourself to what God has to say to you today? Because God is speaking right now. God is still speaking today through his word. It is breathed out from him. The very essence of God is spoken through his word. We don't worship the Bible like it's the fourth person of the Trinity, but we know that the Bible is true and trustworthy because God spoke through it. And he still speaks today. It's one of the reasons I read through the Bible every year in my own personal devotional life. Right? I have to read the Bible every week so that I can stand up here and preach. It's one of like the, the double-edged sword thing of being a preacher. Is like I have to read the Bible. Otherwise, I'm not prepared to do my job here. But beyond that, I have a discipline of reading the Bible. I read, you know, I don't know three to four chapters a day, depending on the day, um, to get through the Bible every year. And the reason I do that is because I want to consistently submit myself to God's Word. I want to put myself under the teaching of God's word because God is still speaking today if you're willing to listen. I want to encourage you today that as we look at the Bible to recognize that God has something to say to you now. You just have to open your word of God. If you don't have a Bible available to you to study, tell me, I will get you one. If you have a Bible that, 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 that's difficult for you to understand, you know, I love the King James Bible. By the way, the reason uh, that... Um, this passage was included in every scripture, the end of Mark and the end of that part of John, is because it was in the King James Bible. Right? And the King James Bible is a massively important Bible. Uh, there's some people who will not let you preach from anything other than the King James Bible. Right? That's the only book that's allowed. My, my wife has an uncle 
who has a church in San Antonio, and they are a King James-only church. They also don't celebrate Christmas. I don't know why those two things are together, um, but, but they're a King James-only church. It's, it's the way in which uh, God has spoken to them. And there's, some, there's something good about that, right? Because then we all know we're reading from the same page. Right? I'm not a King James-only guy because I recognize that God is, is, is working in the process of refining us so that we know exactly what it is that was inspired originally. The King James is a wonderful, wonderful Bible. But some people have trouble reading it. If you have a King James Bible, if that's the only Bible you have access to, and you have issues reading it because you weren't trained on it, you weren't taught on it, King James is a, a unique tongue. Right? It's the first Bible I ever had. So I grew up on it. So I can sit down and read the King James. I can love it. Right? But some people, they didn't grow up on it, and then we give it to them when they're 15 years old, and they've been living in the world. We're like, here you go, here's a Bible. And we hand them a King James, and they can't read it. Get another Bible if you can't read it. And if you have a Bible that's difficult for you, or it's a struggle for you, or it's not in the tongue that's native to you, tell me, I will find you something so that you can learn to love God's Word, because God has something to say. So how do we trust that the Bible is true if there's passages in there that may not be original? First of all, we can trust that the Bible is true because there are thousands and thousands of copies. Old, ancient copies. There is like uh, seven ancient copies of the writings of Plato. Seven. There is over 6,000 ancient copies of the writings in the New Testament. Right? We don't doubt whether or not we can tell you what, what, what Plato wrote and said. Just like, and there's only seven of them. Seven copies to compare and make sure. And they're like 900 years older. Like they're 900 years removed from when, when, when it was written. In the Bible, we have 6,000 copies and they're like 40 years removed from when the original writings were made. We have near old, ancient, ancient texts and we have thousands of them to compare. And that's why I can stand up here and say with confidence, I know that the end of Mark wasn't written by Mark because I have 6,000 copies to compare it to. And I can tell when this textual variant went in. And though it's squeezed by the King James people, we can look and say, well, that's not really, that's not really inspired in the same way that Mark was inspired. Now, maybe you love the end of Mark, and maybe you love the story of Jesus with the woman caught in adultery. That's one of my favorite stories in the Bible, by the way. The story of Jesus and the woman who's caught in adultery. Right? The, their crowd is about to stone her to death. I love that story. So what do we do with those passages? that are disputed. The first thing we do is we recognize that they're a part of ancient Christian tradition. It's part of the oldest part of the churches, right? These wouldn't be included in your Bible if they were new. It's not like the Mormon Bible where some guy just sat down and wrote something back in like the 1800s and all of a sudden said, this is old, I promise. Right? That's the story of Mormonism, by the way. Um, this is old, I promise. So it's written in the 1800s. It's not that, it's ancient. We're going back to, you know, the second century um, A.D. probably when these things were added uh, into, the, into the stories. And so they're ancient stories. And you know what? They smell like Jesus. You, you, know, you know what I mean by that? Like sometimes you read something and you're like, that smells like something Jesus would do. If you know Jesus and then you read the story of the woman caught in adultery, you're like, that sounds like Jesus. Right? And so it smells like Jesus. It looks like Jesus. But you don't build major doctrines off of it. Right? When you run into a disputed passage in Scripture, you don't say, well, we're going to take this one passage that's probably not original, and we're going to build our whole denomination off of it. Right? There's something in the end of Mark that talks about how you can drink poison and you won't die. Right? And if you go up in Appalachia, 
right? You got people passing snakes down aisles and sticking their hands into baskets with snakes, right? Like, that's a bad idea to build your church doctrine around the idea that you won't be bitten by a snake or that you can drink poison and not die from a disputed passage at the end of Mark. The truth is, the early apostles were able to perform miraculous signs and wonders. That's not even in dispute, right? Like, like you have these near-death experiences, things that should have killed them that don't. Right? There's a shipwreck with a bunch of snakes, and somehow uh, Paul doesn't die after being bit, right? There's some truth to that for that day and age. But if you build your church's doctrine on a disputed passage, you're, you're not in good company, Right? First, we need to acknowledge that there's some passages that are disputed. Second, we need to not build our doctrine off them. And third, we need to not let the fact that there's like less than one-tenth of a percent of the Bible that's in dispute, right? literally less than one-tenth of the Bible that has any dispute about it, we need to not let that distract us from the fact that God has literally breathed out words for us today. And everything you need for a life of righteousness and salvation is included in this book. And some of you today just need to know that the story of sin entering into the world from Genesis chapter 2 and 3, the story of sin entering into the world, and the fact that God brought redemption through the man God, Jesus Christ, right? that story has never been altered or changed throughout the history of the copying of the Old and New Testament. What you hold in your hands is the best copy of an ancient text ever recorded. And you can stand with confidence when you read the red letters in your New Testament and you see Jesus speaking. You can stand with confidence and say, Jesus said this. Because the men who copied it and the women who preserved the the Old Testament and New Testament scriptures did so meticulously. And they made thousands upon thousands of copies. And we can trust it today. Some of us, we let little things weaken our faith. I remember that my freshman year at Houston Baptist was my toughest year in my faith because I was was confronted with like 75 things in my Christianity classes that were new to just little Southern Baptist Matt Higginbotham. I mean, brand new things, critical theories and historical Jesus quests and all this nonsense, everything that came out of Germany. You know, I don't know if anything good has come out of Germany except for my wife's family. I mean, I don't know of anything good that's come out of Germany. That's probably not true. Some of y'all are looking around and be like, well, my grandpa was okay too. Maybe your grandpa's fine, right? I mean, Hitler wasn't good though, right? We can agree on that. So that was German. No, I mean, and have you ever eaten German food? My goodness, that's terrible. You're not supposed to insult German food today? And this is a side note, has nothing to do with anything. But my, my, my grandmother married a man uh, who was German, I guess. Last name was Schweitzer. Sounds German enough to me. But he was a member of the German club in, uh, where was they? they? were in New York. Binghamton, New York. And for his 100th birthday, like they had a big party for him. And you go to the, 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 the German club. Or maybe this was at his funeral. I had to go to the German club. I have never, ever left a restaurant hungry in my life. But I did that day. Wow, German food is tough. I don't know. God bless you if you like it. But all this to say, right, I was confronted with all these things from critical theories that, that were taught, and it shook my faith, right? And, and, I, and I wondered, what can I trust? What can I rely on? 
And as I looked closer at this book right here, I realized this book is immaculately preserved and trustworthy. And so I trust this. I trust that God has preserved this for my benefit. And sure, there may be a passage here or there very rarely that I look at critically and say, probably not original, but not bad. But the whole of the Bible is true and trustworthy, and it's for you. It's a gift to you. Are you using it today? This week, these last seven days, since the last time we were together, have you used it on a discipline structure? Right? I mean, I've watched a lot of baseball in the last seven days. These games are long, like four hours a, a game. I see, I've watched a lot of baseball. Maybe you've watched a lot of this or a lot of that. Maybe you've done a lot of this. How, how much time have you spent here? The answer for me, by the way, is less time here than in, in Astros baseball this week, just, just so you know where your pastor is today. I was here, though. I was here as much as I am pretty much any other week, honestly. Because I love God's Word. And He has something to say to you today. Something better than what I have to say. He has something for you. So read it. And trust it. Because it's true. And God preserved it for us. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable. It's for your benefit. So you can be taught. And you can be corrected. And you can be equipped to do every good work that God has called you to do. Use it.